Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. Right about the time that most of you were hearing Scott Silk's read of Arthur Staz's Vacancies and Martin Rato's reading of Franz Kafka's classic A Country Doctor, I was in Washington, D.C., after a lunch at a dim-sum restaurant called Da Hong Pao near Logan Circle Park, seemed like an authentic place as I was the only white person in the place on a busy day. After a bit of time loitering in Lafayette Square in front of the White House, I headed back towards a metro stop to head home. I turned a corner and came upon the scene right as the paramedics arrived. Right in front of me was a man, festooned with colorful scarves, missing his left leg in a wheelchair that had passed from this world minutes before. My party and I waffled silently back and forth of the etiquette of this moment. If we hurried past like we had never seen what was happening, I would feel disrespectful. But if we stood around and bore witness, wouldn't that just be rubbernecking? Also disrespectful, ultimately we stood and watched. 
A man pulled his friend away, likely having made the opposite decision. We watched while DC's emergency medical responders performed chest compressions and unloaded the man into the ambulance, his right arm held out at a strange angle, stiff. As we walked away, one of my party remarked about how badly away that would be to go. I rolled it around in my head, wondering if there actually is a good way to go, but responded with that closing my eyes for the last time on a warm D.C. day would be preferable to the indignity of spending my last years housed away, the burden on my family outsourced to strangers breathing my last on a rented bed. Children of the night, we are strange, aren't we? Doesn't that inescapable voice that reminds us that the clock is ticking lend a sad quality to what it means to be human? And how strange that, if you are like me, we'll sometimes turn to these horrible stories of ours in which death is ever-present, to forget that the grim reaper marked her RSVP at the moment of my own conception. I'm not sure what to make of that, but that sad tableau I saw in the streets of D.C. has been turning around in my mind looking to find purchase of meaning. Of course, that's an absurdist pursuit. I'm not sure what I'm saying. I'm still not sure if there is a good way to die, but a death without friends is worse than being alone. Take care of each other, and I hope that I can take care of those around me. Let's hear from an old friend of Tales to Terrify, Rick Kennett. By my count, we have aired... Five of his stories to date, going all the way back to episode 211 with his story, The Silent Garden. Rick Kennant is a lifelong resident of Melbourne, Australia, where he works in the transport industry, the day job, and has an interest in cemeteries, ghosts, and all things spooky. He has not been owned by a cat for many years, but does occasionally talk to his neighbor's albino Tom, who occasionally condescends to talk to him. Rick's stories have appeared in Aurealis, Andromeda Spaceways, and Weird Tales, in many anthologies, and on several podcasts such as Doonstief, Cast of Wonders, and Pseudopod. On the other side appears in his collection The Dark and What It Said, which is available on Amazon. Children of the Night, it is time for Rick Kennett's On the Other Side, originally published in Midnight Echo 5 in March 2011. The old man regarded her with a fear born of her mad demand that bordered on blasphemy. His voice shook as he said, He has been dead for ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. Wish, said his wife. It was night. He was standing at the end of a muddy street that seemed somehow familiar. 
He couldn't remember how he'd got there. He'd been walking, he knew, in a kind of stupor for a long time. How long he couldn't tell anymore. Nights and days had merged into a continual gray blur. He was cold and hungry, and his feet hurt almost as much as his brain since the horror had seized it. What he could remember, he remembered in thin fragments. Lending his spare clothes to Charlie after the dynamo wheel splattered him with oil. Someone sang, Don't stand so close. Then, a shriek. Something else splattering that wasn't oil. Something that a screaming ragdoll spun round and round, torn and dirtied, minced and broken, his mind overwhelmed by the horror. Wandering lanes and fields, nights of cold, mind gone and blank. Staring like a madman. But bit by little bit, his memory was coming back. Like waking up to pain renewed. Something very terrible had happened all those blank wandering days ago. So terrible his mind had shut down like machinery turned off. Like meshing gears jammed with. The image of the broken doll came back again, making him shudder unawares. And his thoughts lingered on the word jammed. He'd stumbled away from the scene of the accident. The spinning dynamos. The meshing machinery his mind utterly gone, to wander the countryside oblivious, reduced in mind, drinking from streams, scavenging like an animal on berries and field mushrooms. Now here on this muddy road, somehow familiar, his stunned mind began to regain some semblance of sanity. He recalled his home, his loving parents, aged now and frail. Virtually by instinct, he had made his way back to this lonely, out-of-the-way place, where his father had grumbled one rainy night while they waited for a visitor from far away, that the pathway was a bog and the road a torrent. The visitor had brought something from that faraway place, a thing small and shriveled that could grant wishes and cause despair. All at once he'd thrown it on the fire, and father had plucked it out. The next day, a frightening thing happened. Confused, weak with hunger and bitterly cold with a night chill, he opened the gate of a snug little cottage named Lakesnam Villa and knocked feebly on the front door of the home. Home. How the word was balm to his broken mind. Hope and joy swelled within him when he heard his mother's voice call from upstairs. It's Herbert. Then he heard his father's voice too. But why did it sound so strained? Almost angry. Oh, for God's sakes. Yes, yes, for God's sakes, let me in, he thought, his brain still too shocked to speak aloud. He pounded again on the door. It's me. I've come home. Memory returned with unmerciful clarity. He saw how Charlie had been caught in the machinery by his borrowed clothes. The noises he'd made, like breaking sticks and burst fruit. He heard his mother rattle back the door chain, draw the bottom bolt stiffly from its socket. In a frenzy of excitement, happiness, and nausea, as memory assailed him, he pounded wildly on the door, a perfect fusillade of knocks, knowing he would soon be reunited with his loved ones and this nightmare of horror would end. He heard scratching at the top of the door, heard his mother cry to her husband, The bolt! Come down! I can't reach it! A chair scraped across the floor somewhere inside, banged against the wall beside the door. Herbert pounded louder, faster. The top bolt squeaked, drawing back. 
Then his father grabbed the monkey's paw and wished him dead. That was Rick Kennett's On the Other Side as read by Matthew Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the new Sleep Podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matto McFly. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Matt. Our second story is from author Gordon B. White. Gordon B. White has lived in North Carolina, New York, and the Pacific Northwest. He is a 2017 graduate of the Clarion West Writing Workshop, and his fiction has appeared in venues such as Daily Science Fiction, A Breath from the Sky, Unusual Stories of Possession, Night Script Volume 2, and the Bram Stoker Award-winning anthology Borderlands 6. Gordon also contributes reviews, and interviews to various outlets. You can find him online at www.gordonbwhite.com or on Twitter at Gordon B. White. Links to both of those will be in the show notes. Children of the Night, it is time for Gordon B. White's Hair Shirt Drag, which originally was printed in Wrapped in Black, 13 Tales of Witches and the Occult, 2014. I ain't never read the Key of Solomon, but I read the Book of Kings, the rest of the Bible, too, back when Mama thought that helped me fit in. It didn't, it won't, and truth be told, I ain't all that broken up about it. It's hard being the only son in a family of powerful women. Harder still when people say you aren't even man enough for that. But I'm just about over it all, really. It's a humid July evening, as Mama says, accenting both syllables. We're on the porch, listening to the crickets and the frogs settle into their nightly delirium as fireflies rise up across the tobacco fields like ghost lights. Mama's got a mouthful of needles as she helps me pin the dress I'm wearing. She ain't thrilled to be doing it but I need help on the back, and at least out here, the cicadas drown out her disapproving clucks. 
an engine rattling across the field and a red dust cloud barreling down the driveway interrupt our work. It ain't even really dark yet, but the car's headlights are beaming like two wide eyes scared that something's going to jump out at them. As it gets closer, I recognize Emma Turner, a girl I knew from school and the kind that shakes her long blonde hair when she gets out of her car like this was a shampoo commercial. Almost without thinking, I brush my hand across the nearly shaved side of my own head, bristling out a fine mist of sweat. I'm not petty or anything, but she and I have never gotten along. Evening, Ms. Overhauled, she says to Mama. Mama nods. It is. Emma's mouth hangs open as she hesitates, deciding how to address me. See, Overhauled is a matrilineal name passed on through our family's women, although I ended up with that gift too, despite my sex, which was fine until I got to Bushrod Johnson High and the kids all started calling me sissy. But since that's a diminutive, sometimes even an affectionate, of names like Melissa or Jesse, I could pretend it wasn't all that bad. You know, if you squinted hard enough. Anyway, I never let it give them power over me because if there's one thing I know, it's this. Words don't mean nothing. It's only intention that makes things happen. That's important. Jesse, Emma settles on my boy name, smiling as if she and I were on speaking terms. You're looking thin. Her eyes laugh the way her mouth wouldn't dare in front of Mama. I must look a mess, hair frizzed out and makeup smearing in the damp air. Probably more than a little five o'clock shadow. But girls like Emma eat weakness, so I lean in and smile back. You too, Goldie. The nickname sounds innocuous, but she and I both know the rumors behind it. Her smile hardens and she shakes her hair again, probably not even meaning to yet ruled by an instinctual vanity. She tugs at her curls, a tell she's had since middle school when lying to teachers or her boyfriend, Tommy Stins. I like your her freehand waves get up, trash cheek. Half made up, though I may be, I look good in this dress. The sharp lines, cutouts, Sloping hem and everything else is my design and my construction. So if Queen Bee wants to start pulling on threads, jealous that I look better than she ever will, well, that won't end nicely. I sweep the longer part of my hair out of my eyes to stare at her. How's your family, Miss Turner? Mama's louder than the question warrants, pushing herself into the conversation. Your mother and the sheriff doing well? I'm over it. I let go of the moisture-swollen railing, peeled paint stuck beneath my nails. It's too hot for this nonsense. Yes, ma'am, 
Emma says. Her smile is as thin and painted on as her eyebrows, but she sounds sweet as honey. That's good to hear. Mama hands me my pincushion and waves Emma onto the porch. What can we do for you? Well, ma'am, Emma says, I've been told to come ask about your medicine. Now, we call it medicine, but that's just a name to hide behind. Mostly it's little things. Minor healing, divination, a love spell or two. But sometimes it's big medicine, the kind that you probably go your whole life never needing. But when you do, you need it more than anything, and there's just one place to get it. The overhauled women can do it. I can too, even though I probably shouldn't be able to. Emma sits down as Mama picks up a ball of beeswax from the porch railing and pulls out the pieces of straw that run through it. Then Mama rolls the ball between her palms, reforming it like it was never any different than the way she wants it now. Tell me, Mama says, beginning the patter I've heard a thousand times. Have you ever had your future told? In Emma's eyes, I see the petty war between wanting to believe and needing to doubt. Angels got their wings, Mama goes on, but I got my ball of wax. You just pick a piece of straw from that broom there and I'll push it through, bending and crossing, twisting and turning. We call it riding the broom, but it's just following the path and reading the passage. Ain't none of us can fly, but this is like seeing everything from above. I'm over this, too. Back inside the house, I let the screen door slam and... Gaddy, our dog, comes into the kitchen. She cocks her head at that angle that dogs do so well, and I bend down, taking her ears in my hands and rub our faces together. That warm dog smell surrounds me as I tease the fluff on the sides of her neck. Why don't you go keep an eye on Mama, girl? Gaddy shakes out from tip to tail, then trots over and noses the screen open. I can rest a little easier, but the house isn't any cooler than outside, and there's no chance for a breeze, so I head towards the back. It's straight through the kitchen and the living room where we got a fireplace, which we never use on account of the TV's giant silver ears only getting reception right in front of it. Above the fireplace, though, is a photograph of great-grandma Charity still smiling down over her house every bit the proud, overhauled matron. I never knew her, but Grandma said that Charity's hair was the silver of thermometer mercury and that in the moonlight you could see her moving like a star across the fields. It must have been too bright for the black-and-white film, though, because the crown of her head seems to fan out and disappear into the photo's borders. Although this house was a tight fit when it was Grandma, Mama, and me, it's a bit more tolerable since Grandma passed. 
with those two taking turns trying to scare me straight with the fear of Jesus while still learning me the overhauled women's medicine, I didn't get a moment's peace. I would lie here on the fold-out at night and stare up at Charity, shining like a blown-out star, and think how things might be different if she were still around. Sometimes I'd fall asleep and dream of her whispering secrets to me and holding my hand, smiling all the while. You see, Charity got this house and this land from the Beltair family when old Ms. Beltair had a sickness no doctor nor preacher could cure. Finally, Mr. Beltair, with his wife shrunk to skin and bones, went out into the woods where Charity lived with her daughter, my grandma. Mr. Beltair asked her real nice. You didn't ask Charity anyway, but real nice. To come and use her powers. But she just laughed and said she didn't have no powers, only the medicine. But like I always say, the words ain't the important bet. When she got there, the Beltair house was on the edge of mourning. The roosters had been taken away and thick linen sheets sat next to every mirror. But Charity told the men there wasn't nothing to fear just yet. They took her to the sick woman's bedside and Charity had a long, loud conversation with the heirs around her as Ms. Beltair shook and moaned. Then, fast as you please, Charity plucked the mouse from out of the sick woman's forehead, put it in a mason jar, took it home, and buried it at the edge of the woods. Grandma used to say that mouse was the sorriest-looking thing she'd ever laid eyes on, and sometimes at night she used to imagine that she could still hear it tapping against the glass underground. Two days later, the Beltair woman was out of bed, and the day after that, the overhauled women were in this house. It was smaller than a sharecropper's shack that's now the living room, which we've built up around, but Charity's portrait still watches over its old heart. Nowadays, though, nobody knows Beltair, but as the name on the road that connects the interstate to the bypass, but... Grandma's in the churchyard, Charity's in the plot out back, Mama's on the porch, and I'm here in between. I blow a kiss to Charity as I step out onto the back porch where I can still hear Mama and Emma on the other side, ooing and aahing, riding that broom. It's a ridiculous name and, frankly, a ridiculous method. There is plenty of other ways to do it. For example, gypsy girls use cards and balls. English ladies look at tea leaves. I tried that once when I was working the dinner shift at the Pig Heaven Q, cleaning out a five-gallon cooler of sweet tea dregs and watching this whole town's future spin down the drain of an industrial sink. That was enough for me. Nowadays, I find the best way to learn things is just to ask the right person. 
Daddy comes running around the house and jumps up, pawing at my bare legs. I bend down and scratch her chin to calm her. What is it, girl? She whines and whimpers. I see. Well, then. I rub her down real quick, shedding tufts of fluff into the thick air, and then she walks off. I walk past the fenced-in garden where there's a pumpkin growing that literally has Ms. Charisse's daughter's name on it. It's growing well and right on schedule. Ms. Charisse has got a grandbaby due in November, just so long as I get this one up before the frost comes. But straws, pumpkins, bowls of wax, these are all props and misdirection. They ain't the power itself, and they don't control the outcome. For instance, Grandma healed plantar warts by laying on hands and speaking in tongues. Mama does it while she rubs your heel and says the Lord's Prayer. Last time I did it was by giving Tommy Stins a hand job in the locker room while humming Smells Like Teen Spirit. Sure, gym class was a little awkward after that, but... All three of us had a 100% success rates and repeat customers. All that, though, is still easy medicine. Broomsticks, warts, talking dogs, changeling gourds. That's just toying with intent. Something bigger is on the horizon, but it's a dark shape whose edges I can't quite see. I ponder this as I head towards the small gravestones at the wood's edge. Mama and I are sitting at the table after a mostly silent dinner when she looks at me real serious. Jessie, she starts with my name, which is never a good omen. We have to do some big medicine. For that girl who came by today, I push my chair back to stand. Uh-uh. That bitch, boy... You watch your language. You think your great-grandma would have tolerated that in this house? From my seat, I see Charity smiling back at me. She never complained before. Boy, Mama says, and I can tell that I shouldn't push her because she's always in a foul mood when she starts harping on my sex. You're awfully presumptuous. Do you think you know her? I could push the issue, but I'm over it. No, ma'am. I settled down into my chair, waiting to follow Mama's lead. She smooths the front of her blouse and adjusts the pins, holding back her auburn hair, queen of the house, primping to deliver her address. Now, like I said, she finally says, we're going to have to do the rights. What rights? She ignores me, standing instead to clear the dishes, so I do the same and follow her into the kitchen. I watch her reflection in the window over the sink as she sets to washing them, scowling down at her busy hands and speaking to the wall. It takes a lot of work because of the gifts we got to be accepted in this community. We keep hold over the medicine, but it hasn't always been easy. She puts her dishes in the drying rack and takes mine from me, making eye contact for just a second before turning away. You see, 
each overhauled woman, well, each overhauled, has got to undertake a certain rite of passage and protection. It helps us and it helps the town. Her voice is that tired timber on the verge of cracking that I remember hearing say, Why can't you be normal? More times than I'd like to count. It doesn't make me inclined to listen. This town can screw, I say. Dishwater droplets burst like stars as Mama slaps me hard. My hand goes to my face and my eyes are watering and I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry or to take her head off. Oh, baby, she says like it suddenly hit her too. I'm so sorry. Her hands are cool and wet from the dishwater against my burning cheek, but I pull back. I've heard these words before, seen these gestures, and I'm over it. You can't ever talk that way, she reaches for my arm as I back into the living room. You have to appreciate what the folks have done for us. You have to do this for them, for us. My fire is gone, but the anger is changing its shape, becoming something tall and dark. Why? Ever since I was born, nobody here has ever made me welcome. That's not true, honey. She uses that placating tone usually reserved for Emma and the others that come asking for help. They let us live here. What do you mean? I pull my arm from her, sweeping it to encompass the room and great-grandma Charity looking down. This is our house. We don't owe any rent. We don't need permission. A strand of Mama's hair has come loose and hangs across her face like a scar, splitting her in two. She pushes it back and in the same slow gesture points to the faded portrait of my great-grandma, Mama's grandma, with the bright eyes and halo of quicksilver hair bleeding out into the overexposure. Do you see the way your great-grandma Charity is smiling? How her eyes are wide open, watching us? I nod. But they ain't quite straight, are they? Her left eye is looking over here at the sofa, but the right, maybe a little, is looking at the table? I hadn't ever put my finger on it, but I can't not see it now. Her smile, too, looks off, pulled up at not quite the corners. I look to Mama and realize she's watching me. And the way her hair is almost floating, spilling out like she was underwater or maybe lying down, why do you think that is? I think I know now, but I don't want to. <laughs> She's dead there, Jesse. Your grandma, my mama, me had to lay her out, roll her eyes back and stitch her lips together. Her voice swells with righteous air. Do you know why you don't see bell tears around here? 
for the same reason you don't see your great grandma. It's because Mr. Belter gave Charity this house, called it a gift, but one day his sons came and told Charity and your grandma to leave. Charity asked them, Don't your daddy's word mean nothing? And they laughed and said, Words are just words. Well, she should have just said all right and left, but there never was a woman less aptly named than your great-grandma. So she worked her medicine, and after that, what Beltares weren't dead surely wished they were. But when the rest of the town found out, they came here, all of them, and they would have been right, wouldn't they, to have dragged them both out into the woods and burned them to ashes. But they didn't. Instead, when they were done with charity, just charity, they said to your grandma, we did you this kindness, so you're going to do us the same. So you be thankful that they let your grandma and I live here, let us shop in their town, join their church, that they let us bury your grandma in the churchyard and not in a hole out back, that they let you and I go to their school and talk to their children, and if you didn't fit in, that's not anyone's fault but your own for insisting on being so damn... She spits the word out like a curse... Odd. And so the night has led back to the place where it always leads. All the overhauled women have daughters. So when you were born, I hoped, prayed that the line was broken and that you wouldn't have the gifts, but you did. And I don't know why, even being a boy, you can't just be a real one. It's like you try to undo all of our work, but I won't let you. You have got to do this now for me, whether you want to or not. I'm over it. My mind is a place of shadows until I realize that Mama is now standing before me. Jesse, honey, the huckster voice is back. Will you do this, please? I'm tired of fighting it, so I give in and nod. Good, she says. That's real good. From inside her closet, Mama pulls out a large fur coat, but as it comes into the light, I can see that it isn't an animal's skin, at least not one animal. It's a patchwork of fur and hair, different colors, different patterns, different lengths. As I look at it, it seems less and less like a coat and more and more like a ball of beasts all stitched together. Do you know what this is? Mama lays it down gently on the bed like she's afraid something's going to break or maybe fall out. Clearly, I say, it's a Bigfoot costume. Mama laughs, an unfamiliar sound. That's one name it's gone by.
static, maybe crackles as her fingers run furrows through the pelts and the smell of musk and something sweet like honeysuckle sneaks into the room. She smiles in a way I've never seen. There's power in the flesh, in the hair and skin. That's old medicine, blood medicine. We don't do that anymore. She trembles slightly, her fingers clenching. But this has been in our family since before we had a name. Across the seas, they called it a hair shirt, and it made them closer to God. In the swamps, when women who wore it ran like wolves, they called it loop guru. I see now that there's not a rabbit fur nor deer skin among the pieces. These are hunters. A bear's coat, a wolf's hide, a few patches I can't guess, and more than a few long, lanky ones that I can, but don't want to. Generation by generation, my family, she frowns, our family, added to it. It grew longer and longer, covering more and more. Size of a bobcat, size of a bear, size of a skunk ape. And what does it do? I speak softly, cowed by the only half-ridiculous fear that I might somehow wake it up. It makes the medicine stronger, She lets go slowly, letting the hair run through her fingers like sand. And you use this in the ceremony? No, baby, you do. As my hands near the coat, the air between us is writhing. There's heat and pulse, whispers and growls, dark paws and bare feet on the forest floor, but when I pick it up, it's so light that it's almost rising up to meet me, clinging to my hands. Do you feel it? Mama asks. Yes, ma'am. Be very careful with it. The misshapen bulk looms before me, an untamed bramble of dark medicine. I can see the potential, but it's going to need some alterations. A week later, when the full moon rises, Mama stands in a clearing painted red and orange by a singing bonfire. Hidden in the tree line, I watch the ritual as I dress in my second skin. Fireflies blink like curious eyes, but I feel amazing and have no shame in this form. The changes I've made to the hair shirt were extreme, but no matter how much I trimmed, tightened, and realigned, I didn't end up with any more or less than I started. It was like we were working together towards a mutual design. Anyway, I look damn good. 
in the semicircle of seven or eight spectators watching Mama and the Fire, I recognize Emma's golden hair, even in the dark. The others are a mystery, since it was hard enough to get Mama to tell me the purpose of this ceremony, much less who's here. She was vague, but it's some sort of protection, right, to reinforce the boundaries of the town. Every generation, a group of them comes to us for the medicine, the big medicine, and the next generation of overhauled women obliges them with a show of power. It's like a black mass cotillion, I guess. <laughs> From what Gaddy said, I'd had my misgivings, but right now I'm too excited by the feel of the shadows and the breeze running through the hairs on my head and the ones on my ceremonial dress drawing goosebumps where they brush against my naked arms and thighs. I'm a stunning, weeping willow made of darkness just waiting for my cue. For once, Mama isn't chanting the Lord's Prayer, but a full-on incantation. The fire twists and cackles, driving back the spectators in their shadows, the flame bursts, and here I go. I strut out into the light, and I own this forest. Each step drives like a root into the ground, sending out shockwaves as the night trembles before me. At the fire's edge, I see Mama's mouth gaping. The hair shirt isn't a lumpy bear costume anymore, but pure totemic fetish. If she was expecting that homeless Sasquatch look, then this high-fashion fur-drag priestess must be blowing her mind. Everyone is speechless. Short skirt, plunging neckline, thigh highs and arm bangles all positively coursing with power. The red lips and smoky eye aren't medicine, but they might as well be magic. I plant myself by the fire, hips cocked and arms akimbo, to let them finally look upon my realness. For a moment, there are no words. Sissy? Emma is the first to break the spell, forgetting to use my boy name in front of Mama. Holy moly! That's Tommy Stins with the same stunned look I remember from the locker room. But that was the preview, and now here comes the show. The power courses down from the sky and up from the forest floor through the dark hairs that stretch outwards, grasping like antennae. All around me, the black begins to take solid form as the strength of the beasts and men that I am wearing bends around me. I have wings of night and stars, claws of purest void, and I feel like I could reach through the canopy and pluck down the silver moon. Abracadabra, bitches! 
Then I am smashed out of my triumph, screaming as something long and heavy whips across my back. I scream and break under the blows. Get him, someone shouts. All around, flashlights flare like angry stars, and I hear footsteps and more voices, older voices, coming out from the trees and into the clearing. I can only make out their silhouettes behind the fire, but it seems like the whole town is here, watching as the thick chain is wrapped around my throat and arms, pulling and spreading me like a deer on a car's hood. It's heavy and cold, and my skins recoil beneath its touch. I recognize Sheriff Turner, Emma's daddy, by his uniform. He grabs the hair on my head and pulls it back, lifting my face to the assembly. Iron binds the witch, he says. Amen, the crowd responds. Sheriff Turner keeps talking, but the frozen weight of my bindings and the links biting into my bare skin is too much. Rolling my eyes, I see Mama standing off to the side of the group. Her face looks like it's burning the same color as her hair. She looks away when she sees me watching her. Witches have power, but together we are as strong as iron. Come up here, the sheriff gestures to Emma and the others. It ain't nothing to be scared of. One by one, they are buoyed up by the rest of the town's whispering approval. A girl and a boy I can't place are first, and they poke me in the chest, push me back. The chains dig in, and I can feel the skin beginning to tear. Emma comes next, and her father pulls my head up so that I can face her as she slaps me lightly first, then much harder. That's enough, he says, but he doesn't sound convinced. She gets one more in. Then comes Tommy Stins, and I'm afraid he's going to punch me, but instead he leans in close and... For a split second, I think maybe he's going to kiss me, but he just spits out an insult. Freak. Then he gets right next to my ear, and I can feel the tingle of his breath as he calls me the other F word. At that point, I begin to cry. A parade of horribles goes by, laughing and spitting, pinching and prodding. They run together like mascara, but through my tears I recognize the last one by her tight red hair. Mama? I'm sorry, she says, but we all have to do this. This is how you learn what it means to be part of the community. She turns her back, and just like that, I'm over it. Really, truly over it. The power gathers to me. Iron chains be damned. And when I hear Mama gasp, I know she now sees the other alteration I've made to this dress. 
like beams of moonlight, the braids of quicksilver trim that I've added begin to tremble, and there's more anger here than just mine. Charity? Mama whispers. The sheriff's grip tightens, but I just laugh. Not on your life. Then I explode. The iron chain shatters, links tearing through my captors like shrapnel. Sheriff Turner staggers backwards, reaching for his holster. The eye in that dark place where the shadows move and it ain't safe to be near me. Unseen hands reach through and into him, stopping his heart. The silver strands of my war dress sparkle like razor wires, and I close my eyes to finally reveal the second set of black ones I've painted on the lid. Dark eyes, dark hair swirling into the shadow. I am the negative portrait of Charity as I finish her work. The bonfire erupts into the crowd, sending screaming matchstick men and women into the trees, carrying the flames like my emissaries. All round I swing my long dark arms of night, crashing through wood and bone, stone and flesh. Those that don't break are bent and twisted into wrongful, knotted things. I hone in on Emma's golden crown, and with a backhanded sweep, she smashes into a tree beside where Mama now stands, dumbfounded. Emma burbles in hysterics as Mama kneels down to her, finally maternal, but to the wrong person. I sashay towards them through the carnage. Even though I can't see myself, their swollen eyes tell me all I need to know. I smile. I look great. Sissy! Jesse, please! Emma screams and grabs Mama like a shield. I'm so sorry, she says. I'm so, so sorry. But I've been pretty clear on the value of words. was Gordon White's Hair Shirt Drag as read by Anna Simmons. Anna Simmons is a trans girl writer living in Brooklyn, like some cliché with a couple of cats and her non-binary partner, who can only painfully look on as she rather tragically attempts, amid the gently passing years, to claw her way into TV writing in some fit of sustained self-delusion, capitalism's fevered death drive retaining its possession of the imagination still. Thank you, Anna. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. 
Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.